0: This is Arab Talk on KPOO, eighty-nine point five FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Han Nam, and I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a really great show today. We're going to be covering a number of topics today. We've been talking about this uh, ruling by Kogat, the Israeli military kind of authority that oversees policies in the west bank and and gaza but mostly the west bank obviously and they're going to revisit their so-called policy of visitors to the west bank having to disclose basically who their intimate partners are and uh, we're going to discuss that revisiting of that issue we're going to talk a little bit about the colonial history you know we're in the midst of the actually today Queen Elizabeth II is being laid to rest, and there's a long history of colonial exploitation, obviously, in the context of her her burial today and the ascendance of the new monarch, King Charles, and that colonial history extends to Palestine, and uh, we should, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about that and kind of put that in some context. But before we get to those items, we're going to watch an interview that you did with uh, Dr. Rania Masri and Anis Germani, who are going to talk about, you know, the tremendous political, economic, and social upheaval going on in Lebanon right now. We've kind of lost sight of that, Jamal, but Lebanon is, it's beyond saying that's in crisis. You know, you have have a society, both economically, politically, and socially, that's basically tearing apart the sectarianism. Last week, you know, people had to rob a bank in order to get their money
1: out of their their own savings out of their account. more in... more, more than seven people, I think seven or yeah, nine yeah. people. Yeah. Now it's it, it's it's becoming a trend. Imagine yeah. you want to get your money from your bank, you have to and bring you got it. And you gotta rob it. Exactly.
0: <laughs> so, but that speaks to the kind of manifestation of how how fragile and how catastrophic things are. For Lebanon right now, in addition to the million or so, you know, Syrian refugees that are still trying to adjust there. So uh, really great show today.
1: Yeah. So let's uh, watch Dr. Rani Al-Masri and Dr. Anis Germani. Lebanon, described in the past as the Switzerland of the Middle East, is now mired in the worst economic crisis its citizens have faced in decades a collapse that day by day is pushing Lebanese citizens to the brink, many of whom have tried to leave the country in precarious boats, joining a wave of migration that continues to grow. Recently, angry Lebanese have forced their way into as many as seven banks to access trapped savings as the country's crippling financial crisis pushes people to take the law into their own hands. According to data published by the United Nations, Eight out of 10 Lebanese live below poverty line. Joining us to discuss this and more, Dr. Rani Al-Masri, university professor and member of the political movement Mu'atineen wa Mu'atinat fi Dawla, translated as Citizens in a State, and Dr. Anis Germani, a political activist and a medical doctor. Welcome to both of you. Glad to have you back on Arab Talk.
2: Pleasure to be with you.
1: So since we last spoke in the summer of 2021, the economic crisis has deteriorated deteriorated rapidly. Dr. Germani, please summarize some key factors that dug Lebanon deeper into this economical quagmire.
3: Well, I think uh, ironically, it's gonna be very similar to, our talk is gonna be very similar to last year's. And it is just a premeditated indecision that is driving the crisis uh, deeper. Um, the idea that uh, so far nothing none none of all the talk that has been um, you know like instilled on the political scene whether it's reform capital control reforming the banks um, any kind of um, social safety net none of this has come to pass unfortunately much of that time was wasted on on um, fruitless conversation around the uh, elections, the parliamentary elections. This has led to the election of around 10 so-called opposition MPs. So far, we haven't seen uh, what they are in opposition to and what they intend to do. We haven't seen the difference. Uh, on the contrary, now, I think what's what's the d- different now and also very similar is that we're jumping into, uh, onto another wagon, and that is that the, pres- the presidential elections. None of this matters. None of this has any impact on the crisis. And, and, and this is something that the uh, political rulers of the country know exactly well. Mm-hmm. So they delve into these matters of no consequence while just to purposefully ignore what is actually going on. And th- there's always like these milestones and these promises and these deadlines, but it, it never comes to pass. So everybody's just waiting for something. Uh, but that's something will never come to pass. And this is very simple. The, the reason why it's very simple. Nobody wants to mess with the structure of interests, the, that so-called um, Switzerland of the Middle East that you mentioned in your introduction. Well, that means that we're just a, a, a relic of a banking state that is completely bankrupt, and nobody wants to change the bank. Nobody wants to, to admit that the bank is bankrupt.
1: Wow. I mean, hyperinflation in Lebanon exceeds double figures. The Lebanese currency lira has been devalued of more than 90% since 2019, added to this uh, the repercussions of the COVID-19 crisis, the Beirut port explosion, and I'm sure there is an impact from the Russia-Ukraine war. I recently we- witnessed an interview from a desperate Lebanese who was trying to leave the, the country on a boat. And, and and this is his words. He was saying, I would rather risk my life at sea than listen to the cries of my children when they are hungry. I mean, you're talking about this, uh, nothing's happening. Dr. Masri, how did Lebanon get to this point? Are really politicians, are they re- uh, tone deaf? I mean, how long can Lebanese endure? Um, I
2: mean, Dr. Anis said it very when he called this situation premeditated indecision and this is exactly what we have premeditated indecision it's it's not that our politicians the politicians in power let me be specific not all the politicians it's not that the politicians in power are tone deaf they are beyond tone deaf they are crippled and held hostage by a structure that they do not want to change. And the structure is not only the political sectarian system, which in and of itself breeds incompetence and corruption. It is a political sectarian system that is married to the banks that themselves for decades have put Ponzi schemes that many of your viewers in the United States would be familiar with. Well, the banks in Lebanon have taken Ponzi schemes to a whole new extreme but these banks are married to the national bank, which is married to the sectarian political system, of which these politicians do not want to change. Now, either they don't want to change the structure because they are part of the structure, so they don't want to relinquish what they consider to be you know, what's left of their power. Or they don't want to change the structure because their imagination is so lacking that they cannot envision anything else than what they have. Now, you asked the question as to how long can Lebanese endure, and this is a double-edged sword. Um, Many political analysts in the West have looked to Lebanon and said, this is a country of resilience. These people are resilient. As Lebanese, we abhor the term resilience. Resilience is what has gotten us to this stage it is because we have been so resilient, because we have adapted so long that we are at a stage now where we do not have electricity, we do not have a functioning internet, we do not have a functioning state where our judges, imagine this, our judges and prosecutors are on strike. You know, we, we are beyond the stage of no state. We are beyond the stage of chaos. And it, one of the reasons is because we, the Lebanese, have been too resilient. We have adapted too well. And we have let go of our own imagination of envisioning a country that we deserve, a country that is not held hostage by political sectarianism, a country that is not held hostage by foreign interest, and a country that rejects the status of Bashir Gemayel and many of the other right-wing political parties in Lebanon that claim that our strength is in our weakness. So we are <laughs> truly broken. We are truly at a stage of, of of being broken as a country and as a society.
1: Uh, Lebanon scores 24 uh, out of 100 in the Transparency International. Uh, this is a mm-hmm. 2021 corruption perception index. Mm-hmm. Would you say corruption is a factor, uh, Dr. Germany?
2: No, no. I'd, well, I'd, if I could answer that, Anissa, and then you could jump in. Um, go, because, ahead, go, ahead, go ahead. you know, the, this, this, Sorry, sorry. This, this idea of corruption is one of the things that really infuriates me. You know, oh, we need to stop corruption in Lebanon. Corruption is not the problem in Lebanon. You cannot have a political sectarian system and not have it be corrupt. It, it is part of the structure that the country has been held hostage within for decades. So if you want to stop corruption in Lebanon, we have to build a secular state. You know, And a secular state does not mean there won't be corruption. A secular state opens the possibility for an end to corruption. But a sectarian state rejects the idea of no corruption because it is by design corrupt. It cannot but be corrupt. So all those that speak against corruption or call for transparency, that's not our problem in Lebanon. That's not our problem at all. You know, Corruption is above the table in Lebanon. When it's so apparent, I wouldn't call it corruption. I would call it the system itself. I'm sorry, Ennis, for, for interrupting me. Mm.
3: Well, I mean, you said it well, but I would, I would add maybe a small distinction, and that is the matter of, of secularism. And I think there are a lot of deeply, deeply flawed uh, secular yes. states. And as you've mentioned, yes, it's not a recipe for destroying, like, uh, annihilating corruption. But the the issue with Lebanon, I think, goes back way further than just a few decades. I mean, the whole um, the, the constitution of the political economy of Lebanon that started independence in in the 40s was built around um, a perception, an imaginary um, that that worked and failed multiple times. The idea that that Lebanon is a, a country of trade, of banking, of finance. Um, the idea that we do not produce. The idea that that people need us, even though we provide them with nothing. And when I say people, I mean foreign countries and foreign interests. All of these things. This this um, artificial artificial maybe identity that was rooted into the political economy. This in of itself um, is is just, uh, it it, it holds so much influence over the Lebanese imaginary. And this wields this idea of personal uh, entrepreneurship, the idea that you're you're really good uh, by by taking from somebody else. You're really good if you have more power, more influence, monopolies. That thing thing is, is corrupt, morally corrupt. But if we want to move it to the political, then well, we go back to what Anya was saying, and that is that this is how the system functions, and we cannot. It's, it's basically like diagnosing a body. If a body works that way, that does not mean that it's a virus or a bacteria that is corruption. It just is the way that it is. It's it's just not functional, and this is where we are today. So yes, eradicating the corruption. Fine, but what about the entrenched interests, the banking interests, the financial interests, the monopolies? what about those these 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 things can coexist with a completely transparent system, and so that means that
1: corruption is not the issue it's
3: just how the the structure is
1: i think you've you've touched on on this topic, dr Rani, I mean you started talking about and we you said that before the sectarian system is is a key to resolving major issues and we keep hearing about reforms that's what i keep reading about the imf is asking lebanon to you know to come up with a, a, a budget and reforms and and, and 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 what are reforms really in your opinion what what's your vision for reforms
2: <laughs> there can be no reform within a political sectarian system it's like giving aspirin to a patient who's dying of cancer Um, that the patient might feel a little better for a little while, but the patient will still die. What, the reforms that they're talking about are reforms that, that will make Lebanon better for foreign interest and for foreign loans. They're not reforms that will make Lebanon better for the Lebanese society and for the millions of non-Lebanese that are also the responsibility of the Lebanese government. Those aren't the reforms that we're talking about. The reforms that the so-called opposition MPs are talking about are even smaller than those reforms. I mean, we can't even identify what those reforms are. So we we are at a stage right now in Lebanon where we cannot be speaking about reform, we have to be speaking about transformation. It is again reforms go hand in hand with this concept of adapting and resilience, and we simply have nothing left to reform within the structure. I know, Anise, you want to speak more about the the concept of reforms and you know your favorite opposition I mean, members I, in, uh, in parliament.
3: I mean, I always find it ironic that um, I think mean, the IMF is at the left. Of the Lebanese left, in terms of what they're what they're asking, yeah. and and it's always important to remember that the IMF is a is an international financial institution. It is not an institution that cares about economies, and by economies I mean people. The idea is that their goals are strictly financial, and once they manage to balance the books, so that a country that is uh, that is bankrupt is able to take on more debt, and and this is the, the essential criteria: just more debt then they're fine and they don't care about the people and the economy they live in how they live how they consume their their way of life all of it does not matter so so even those reforms that are being pushed by the imf which are honestly the basics of the basics and applying just that would even be criminal even that is not even on the table today. Today, what is going on is that we are seeing two things. You have the reforms of the IMF that are, that are always there in the rhetoric. At the same time, whenever the rhetoric goes way too high, you have the re- quote-unquote reforms of the Lebanese banks. And these are two antagonizing um, projects that, are, that they are trying to marry In order to do nothing whatsoever, because today the the Lebanese politicians or the people in power, they don't want to please, they don't want to please the IMF. but uh, Anger the IMF too much, because once the illusion that we're going to be saved saved by the IMF falls apart, then they're going to have to be dealing with a lot of domestic anger. So what what needs to happen today is truly... uh, uh, a radical change and i i believe this is the problem the problem today in lebanon if you want to boil it down to something there is no radical opposition there is no radical program i'm talking about uh, socializing healthcare education about uh, redistributing Wealth, resources, land, this is what we need. And anything shorter of that is not going to be able to do the transformation that I is talking about. But even more so, it is not going to push the people in power either to act or even to dig into their heels and for other people to work together to overthrow them. None of this is going to come to pass.
1: People here uh, don't have an idea, really. I, I personally lost track <laughs> about the what the value of the lebanese lira for example mm-hmm. just just to give you an idea uh lebanese authorities still calculate custom tariffs at the old peg of uh, one thousand five hundred five liras to the dollar yeah and 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 that's that's not real i mean how how does this major devaluation how what how does this impact number one the economy and then the buying power for the average citizen to for people to understand what lebanese are going through
3: i mean the devaluation itself does not impact uh, the economy the devaluation is a symptom of a failing economy and this is what it is uh purchasing power is down in the drain of course the idea that we're going to keep uh, we we want to refloat the banks by printing more lira and this is the only thing that's happening. The, the printing of lira is is a, a sort of a, a mechanism in order for the mass of people to pay the dues of the banks. And that is only. It is not driving the 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 currency the the, the exchange rate down. It is not doing that. It is actually allowing people. To buy stuff while still uh, paying for the losses of the banks, which is this is kind of a small misconception about the Lebanese situation. But at the same time, the idea that the currency will still fail and will still be devalued just because we don't have enough dollars and we still. Import. We are, we are still we are still in a deficit, a much lesser deficit than before, because of the collapse of purchasing power, and the consequences of that are through the roof. And I can I can speak uh, to to this as a doctor. I the patients. That I'm seeing uh, who suffer from complications due to lack of medication, the critical cases in hospitals that don't have uh, access to essential uh, antibiotics is, is just insane. The, mortality, the infantile mortality rate tripled last year, which is one of the main indicators of how uh, developed the healthcare system is. And this is already tripling. That means that the whole system is is falling apart so it's, it's the tariff on, uh, on the customs tariff it being priced on the on the old peg is not um if you want to talk about it in terms of purchasing power it it does not affect purchasing power today when it's at the 1,500 rate. It is a way of subsidizing uh, the, the gains of importers because importers are, are pricing their, their, their goods at, at, a, at the dollar rate or even more. Uh, but then when once they will adjust or change the, the that the, the custom tax, they're going to increase it even more. So today, what's happening, that difference between the 1,500 rate in taxes versus the cost of goods is being pocketed by importers who monopolize the market. So this has actually no impact today on purchasing power, but in the future, once that tax is raised, these importers will raise the prices even more.
1: Going back to the to the bank uh, to the banks really i mean desperate lebanese are robbing their own banks to access their own savings is is this a trend uh, dr masri or i mean what's the psychological impact
2: i wouldn't say they're robbing the banks they are using arms many a times plastic guns to restore what the courts have failed to restore to them they are going into the banks and taking their own money. And to to my knowledge, all of them have not gotten all of their money. I mean, none of them have gotten all of their money. So they're not robbers. And, And when you use the expression earlier, take the law into their own hands, that's literally what they are doing. They are trying to enforce the law because the courts have chosen to be incompetent in enforcing the law. So they're, they're, not, they're not stealing. They're not taking anything that isn't theirs. They are trying to reclaim what is theirs. Uh, they are greeted as heroes throughout most of the Lebanese society. Uh, they are greeted with, with pride. They are greeted with glee. Um, the vast majority of them have been men. But when one woman, Sally is Uh, went to the banks with a plastic gun and she stood up and she, you know, social media started representing her as our Wonder Woman, our superhero. Uh, So in terms of what has been the psychological impact on on the Lebanese people, I would argue that that they have given a sense of hope and dignity and, and focus to the anger. However, is this the way forward for us all to take, you know, plastic guns and try to reclaim our dollars in the banks? No, of course, it can't work that way. The banks will eventually retaliate with armed security. The armed security will eventually cause some harm. And this thing will escalate. Do I support what these individuals are doing in the banks? Unconditionally, yes. I most definitely do. But is this the way forward? No, it cannot be the way forward because the way forward has to be much more organized with much more of a holistic vision. It has to be led by workers, by independent unions of which we barely have any by courageous political parties that demand transformation, you know, by a a real revolution and not the kind of uprising protest that we had in 2019 that I refuse to call a revolution. You know, are, are we there yet in terms of the organizing power of political parties and the organizing power of workers and the imagination of the Lebanese? Unfortunately, no. So within this gap, here comes these, what has it been, nine, 10 banks? Here come these individuals that have you know, shaken the country and and given us a little bit of of hope and energy in the process.
1: I mean, what what uh, what do you expect from the banks? You said, well, they're going to have now more security, etc. Oh no no. <laughs> I mean, are they going to are going to give people their their money? I mean, I mean, uh, sorry for using the term "robbing" because it sounds to me the the banks are the robbers when they the take your money. The banks are the robbers. They are not the giving banks you back. Are the robbers? So with this, that's why I said it has a psychological impact of giving people hope. But then again, you've said the banks will retaliate, and so where is that going to lead you to?
2: I mean, the banks have retaliated by threatening a strike. And it's quite interesting in Lebanon that we have judges on strike, prosecutors on strike, and banks on strike. I mean, where else have you heard about this? And in this way, Lebanon is exceptional. And who actually goes on strike are the ones in power and not the people that that are oppressed and the people that are suffering. So the banks would retaliate by closing their doors for a few more days, maybe for a few more weeks. Once they open the doors, there will be these Um, you know, these actions by people, they will come back. The banks are threatening to bring in armed security guards. Let us also remember that the armed security guards, the police force, the military in Lebanon are barely getting paid. They're barely surviving. They're barely making ends meet. So economically, if we look at it as a class struggle, they are on the same side as the people themselves who are taking back their own money. Where this will lead is to more chaos. Will the chaos then be taken advantage of by the people who should take advantage of it, the organizers, the, the leftist politicians, the, the people with vision? That becomes the question. That becomes the critical question in my perspective.
1: Well, I want to go back to the subject of reforms or or whether economically or politically, or you, you called it, I think, restructuring of this or getting rid of the sectarian system. How is this possible when the exodus number one of young educated Lebanese who are key to to the country's futures recovery continues to, to happen
2: yeah, but does revolution really happen from the educated middle class I'm, I'm not so sure so yes we, we are there, 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 there is a massive um, change in the fabric of the society most definitely we are losing a significant percentage of our youth, as we have been losing since 1991, since the end of the physical violence of the Civil War and the beginning of the dramatic economic violence of neoliberalism. Um, so let, let us keep the, the immigration into perspective. It has escalated over the past few years, but it did not begin in 2019. It really, um, in this flood, began in 1991. Um, but but in terms of... Let, let me Let me phrase it this way. Yes... We are seeing a a restructure of Lebanese society. There are many people who are leaving, but there are also many people who cannot leave. Many workers who cannot leave because they are too poor, because they have the wrong citizenship and the wrong papers. There is hope that maybe if those workers get organized, there is a movement that is starting to organize the delivery workers in Lebanon, which is the largest sector of workers in Lebanon and these are workers that are not beholden to any political party they are not beholden to any foreign interest and they cover all of the country and they are too poor to travel too poor to emigrate so there is a movement now to help organize those delivery workers and to let them become a powerful force to push the country towards a political transformation
1: doctor germany what steps should be taken to at least Stop, maybe not resolve the economical issue, but stop the hemorrhaging. That that the I guess the government needs to take, or you know, before this thing can, keeps spiraling out of control, which it is.
3: Well, they can start by resigning. <laughs> um, the idea, the idea that we can um, quell a hemorrhage without identifying, you know. The causes of that hemorrhage without addressing these causes, I mean, it's like slapping, you know, a plaster on a huge wound, a gaping wound. It's not going to fix anything. So what? let's examine why people leave. They leave out of need and out of despair. Their needs are many. They need education. They need security. They need food. They need access to essential goods and medicine. All of these things, they need even the the idea that in the future, if they stay in this country, they will have a decent future, a a place where they can live a decent life, not under threat all the time by anything, by a collapse, by a bomb, by a war. So how can we deal with all of these things while saying, okay, I'm gonna keep all the same regime that has been doing all of this to to its population, but I'm gonna stop the hemorrhage. It doesn't make sense. If we want to talk about today, today, that would look like the declaration of the victory of a radical proposal. On that day, the hemorrhage would stop. You know, people would be inspired to invest, at least to invest whatever time, effort, labor, and money they have left into this new project. But asking them to stay and sacrifice even more in a defunct system, I think this is just asking for
1: too much at this point. Doctor Masri, you talk about the real problem is the sectarian system, and and I don't see a way out. Uh, I think you're probably have better ideas or you're more optimistic than than me. I mean, is there a change? Because to, to, in order to do that, people have to kind of be behind it. I mean, do you see that something that is possible for the vast majority of Lebanese to say we're gonna, you know be a real democracy and, and not rely on the system?
2: There, there's a few things, just to put it into historical context. Change never happens with the majority. It happens through the minority. So we don't really need the majority of Lebanese to feel one way or the other. And I, this applies wherever we are in the world. Change happens through an organized group of less than 15% of a population. That's one thing. Second thing is, is during, during crises, People lack imagination. They they lack the ability to envision beyond their current state. And they have been trained for decades, if not hundreds of years, to accept crumbs presented to them as reform. Perhaps if you were to ask people 700 years ago, several hundred years ago, if they were to envision life without royal monarchs, they would have thought it was impossible and they would simply have asked for a benevolent king. Now we find the idea of monarchs to be insulting and to be offensive, you know. And I'm saying this... During the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, the whole idea of a monarch is insulting and offensive. And we can say this now, but a 100 years ago, this, this talk would have been ludicrous. The same applies today when we look at the political sectarian system in Lebanon. If we take into consideration that people are exhausted and people are beyond despair and people have been trained through the structural violence of denying a real narrative in Lebanon They have been trained, we have been trained to believe that there is no alternative but a political sectarian system. So, consequently, from my perspective, the biggest challenge that we as political activists and political analysts have is to empower the imagination. So, we can say, yes, there is an alternative to the political sectarian system. Just as myself as a socialist, I constantly argue, yes, there is an alternative to capitalism. It is not capitalism, you know, or or nothing. Actually, (laughs) capitalism will only lead to nothing. Same thing with the political sectarian system. It will only lead to nothing and more destruction. So how do we empower the imagination? And how do we empower the imagination while we're building unions, while we're building workers' collectives, while we're building organized oppositional political parties? This is the challenge that we have in Lebanon. And we have to do both those things in the midst of a horrendous financial and economic bankruptcy, which makes it, yes, extremely hard to imagine. But we have to because we have no choice but to imagine it and but to organize for it. The other alternative is complete death and defeat.
1: But I mean, I'll be- give you
2: another example. This would this, the. This, this, but this week marks the fortieth anniversary of Jamal, Jibeth al al al-Wataniyi, Which was a coalition of rag small political parties led by the Communist Party and the Syrian Social Nationalist Party and a few others, you know, a few leftist Palestinian parties, and they came together, despite the feeling of despair in Lebanon, to say we will defeat the Israeli occupation of Beirut. And they did. You know, so while we mark the 40th anniversary of Jammu, let us feel enriched by their victory to say, yes, today we will organize to defeat the political sectarian system. Let's at least have that as a plan and work towards it instead of saying it is too impossible. How can we have reform of a destructive political system? How can I live with slightly less poverty? How can I live less corruption? No, no. You know, our people deserve it all.
3: Yeah, I I just wanted to add one quick thing. The idea that so far, like, I mean, in in this interview, we've only been discussing material issues in Lebanon. That's poverty and need and the crisis and all that. That means that this is the driving force behind um, everything that's going on in Lebanon today. So the idea of people not being able or willing to march behind a different project, I think this is wrong because the premise is, their material needs and their aspirations and the the failing of the current system to meet any of these needs. So no change has in any case uh, come to fruition in a context of peace and calm. It's always in times of disruption and even despair. And this is one of those situations. I think what's only lacking is a project that would supplant whatever ideological aspirations those sectarian parties instill in the minds of their citizens. So once there is this truly progressive leftist alternative that can um, take over that ideological part of the uh, sectarian parties, then we, we can succeed. There is a hope for success because all the other factors are here.
1: Dr. Rania Al-Masri and Dr. Anis Germani, Thank you for sharing your insights on Arab Talk.
2: Pleasure. My pleasure.
1: That's the voice and the faces
0: of uh, Dr. Rania Masri and Dr. Anis Germani talking about the uh, kind of the chaos and the difficulties and the upheaval that's going on in Lebanon right now, Jamal. I mean, I know we haven't talked about it for some time now, but the reality is things are worsening Significantly,
1: for people in Lebanon right now, it's it's pretty dire. It's it's very dire, Jess. And uh, we've had them on the show uh, in 2021, summer of 2021, and things right. were really bad. And now hey, they just sunk even deeper into that uh, quagmire. Uh, I like the energy from both of our guests uh, and and their optimism they're thinking of solutions uh, they're not throwing uh, the white towel they think that the Lebanese people can do better they're just in a kind of caught in this sectarian system uh, in in Lebanon and and they they see that a uh, getting rid of the sectarian system is the first step to any political right. and economic stability uh, for the country
0: and, but that's the, ultimately the question i mean everybody's been speaking about that saying that for many years now in lebanon but the reality is people in power in lebanon are not ready to relinquish that sectarian st- political and economic structure that's been with the country you know for forever now in the modern era so the question we i have for you and i would have for uh doctors uh masri and germani is what's it going to take for the for the elites in lebanon to finally give up the ghost of the sectarian ruling structure it's i don't the, know
1: it's it's really the power of the of the will as, as you've mentioned And, uh, I don't want to say the Middle East is any exception. No one in power likes to relinquish power. We've seen it right here in this country with uh, (laughs) Trump. True that. You know, so. True that. But in the Middle East, you know, just like any other places, it has to be driven through the will of people. Sometimes, sadly, through revolutions or, or violence or what have you. But, uh, you know, those in power, man, uh, historically, they just don't. Want to resign? I mean, we, they, don't. Some, some, they just don't want to leave. And, and, and we used to think, well, maybe it's the Middle East or maybe it's in third world countries. But hey, we've seen it right here in this country. We yeah, barely dodged I... the bullet with failing short, really, of just sending whatever the Secret Service to drag Donald Trump out of the White House. He didn't want to leave
0: no he didn't want to leave and there was a book that just came out recently that he he basically told many of his intimate staff that he wouldn't leave but that's another story but I think your point is spot on Jamal this is not a uniquely Lebanese Middle Eastern or Arab issue this is a uniquely human issue that that has to do with people not wanting to give up power economic power political power social power uh even when there's you know in the context of democracy so lebanon i mean it, but but we have to you know this show we we focus on the middle east and we we have to say in fact that we have uh, since the arab spring we have so many failed states now that uh uh that we're confronting you know I mean Lebanon to some extent, you could make an argument is failing or is a failed state, Syria is a failed state tunisia we we haven't spoken about recently, but now they're kind of walking back some of the gains that they got from the Arab Spring, so we're really in a situation you know Libya, you know the list goes on. It's a very difficult time now in the Arab world, Jamal. It's a very, very difficult time.
1: That's right. We're going to move on to the next story, yes. But before we do that, I just want us to remember Sabra and Shatilla, which which uh, basically this month from the 16th to the 18th was the infamous massacre of Sabra and Shatila. That also happened also in Lebanon. It's 40 years. I can't believe that's 40 years have passed since that uh, infamous uh, massacre, and and probably we'll discuss it more in details uh, next week or in the coming weeks.
0: That's right, Jamal. But let's talk a little bit about how it is for visitors to Palestine, specifically in the West Bank, whether or not they have to reveal their intimate partners. We spoke about this. There was a global outrage against the apartheid state for even doing something like this Wow, surprise, surprise. It looks like they're revisiting this apartheid idea that you have to disclose your intimate partners. Well,
1: with a caveat, so don't get fooled by the headline. So for those who don't know, COGAT, that stands for israel's coordinator of government activities in the territories they failed to mention the occupied territories they say the territories what territories the territories in china or in the philippines <laughs> i don't know but anyway that's 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 the kogat recently announced that it was uh, revising its uh, uh, forthcoming guidelines for entry into the west bank by foreign nationals. and if you remember uh, there was a backlash, which we discussed uh, because they passed a new new series of travel rules that are scheduled to be implemented this fall, including stipulation that foreigners had 30 days to report the start of romantic relationship with any Palestinian ID holder. So that's that's one of their... Uh, draconian rules in addition to this limiting the numbers of um, students, foreign students or foreign uh, academics who are scheduled to teach in Palestine. So, except they really haven't, just yes, you know, because two things. One, Kogat did remove its stipulation that foreigners must declare a relationship with the Palestinian within 30 days of getting married, engaged, or moving in with them that's i'm just using their words here however the overall constraint remains so according to their uh, their new rules uh, appointed cogat officials must be informed as part of the request to renew or extend existing visas in other words individuals still have to report the information to cogat and still cogat will determine their visa then they also revised the numbers for uh, of uh, the added categories for permits uh, for teachers and they removed they removed the cap of 100 they had before uh, of visiting uh, lecturers and 150 students uh, at Palestinian universities. So, so they removed that part. So. Cosmetically, it looks like they've made something, but they didn't.
0: But they haven't, Jamal. The reality is that they haven't. It's all cosmetic. It's it's not even as good as bad cosmetic surgery. It's easy to see through this. It's easy to see that they're, you know, this is part of the husbutta kind of uh repackaging of these really, you know, there's no other way to call it but dr- you know, grotesque apartheid practices trying to control. Every aspect of life uh, for Palestinians living in Gaza and the West Bank and Jerusalem, and uh, not only Palestinians but also people visiting, whether it be academic professors or or students coming to study in Palestine, I, I
1: don't see it as any. What what's different is the packaging, right? Well, not only this. That's actually half the story. So half the story, of course, it's all smoke and mirrors to to say, look, we listened to to you because we because of the backlash of the international community didn't like that and made it, basically mocked that decision. The second half of the story, just it's tied to the visa waiver program. Right. So that's that's the real right. motivation behind Pogat. Right. Minor revision, if you want to, even if you want to call them minor revisions. So, so, uh, you know, Israel has been, Israel, and I should say there's the, it's surrogates in Congress. They've been fighting tooth and nail to be granted what we call it the United States waiver, a visa waiver program which allows basically citizens of foreign countries to come to this country and stay here for 90 days without obtaining right. a visa at the embassy they right. want to join basically but we grant eu countries for example or 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 the uk so that you can fly in here and just like americans fly into france and get 90 days so they have been lobbying for this especially uh, more now since September 2021, uh, with, uh, with with President Biden, and then of course, uh, you know, po- uh, progressive politicians. They said, "Hey, wait a minute, what about all these?" crazy rules that you pass on uh, foreign visitors, especially if, if they are Palestinian-Americans or or Muslim-Americans or Arab-Americans visiting Israel and all that investigation, et cetera. We cannot give you that because you discriminate against citizens of the United States. And that's why their visa waiver program has been on hold, right. practically, practically frozen for, for many years. And they've just been dying. Netanyahu tried his best, and you know, he's, he's the longest ruling prime minister of Israel, did not succeed. right? Even during the Trump administration, It succeeded to moving the embassy into Jerusalem, but did not succeed because several congressmen hmm. and women and senators uh, raised that issue. It's like, if you want us to do that, you cannot bring... Doctor Jess Ghanem when he travels to <laughs> to Jerusalem, right to the, to the investigation room for an hour, you know, that's and, right, and possibly de- deny him a visa because right. of his Palestinian background, you know, and and so they they now they are now trying different things. They they they've created these crazy rules. They just basically what do they want you to? They just increase their their rules basically against Palestinian Americans, and then they want to negotiate to walk back some of these rules if the United States grants, grants them that waiver. And I hope the, the administrations, members of these administrations, the White House, the State Department who are listening to us on this show, not fall into that trap, because here's the
0: trap jamal you're exactly right once they if this change were to be made and the and and and, you know they would be granted special privileges under the visa waiver rule one day after that were to happen if it were to happen they would go back and change all the code the cogat would go and change all the rules all over again we know that that this is just a ploy this is just a marketing ploy by the apartheid state to get what they want, they continue to do the draconian, oppressive rules that govern all aspects of existence for Palestinians and visitors to Palestine on a daily basis. I mean, why? Why would? Why would the State Department go along with this joke, Jamal? Because
1: they... of the pressure of, of course, AIPAC. why would? congressmen and congressmen and senators vote in favor of israel what i'm saying here just if they go along with this program yeah they're granting waiver visas to apartheid they are endorsing apartheid i mean but
0: but they have endorsed them they have endorsed apartheid yeah but this is
1: even bigger than this because that's You know, it's apartheid practice not only on Palestinians living in, in, in Palestine, in historic Palestine, but also on American citizens who happen to be of the wrong ethnicity or the wrong religion trying to visit the country that's also apartheid on the border basically and 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 why would they be why should they be given preferential treatment coming to the United States
0: well that's and i think that's the way it needs to be addressed to congress people why are we rewarding apartheid why are we supporting apartheid why are we rewarding this oppressive regime by giving its citizens special privileges when it continues to oppress And use these apartheid practices. I mean, I'm sure we're going to continue to follow this uh, story, Jamal. We're going to follow it a long time.
1: You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO, San Francisco 89.5 FM. We got to talk about the story of the past two weeks, almost. Yes, I mean wall-to-wall coverage, non-stop, non-stop on a US TV, and I know on, on Western media in general. But in in the United States, it's like uh, I haven't watched. I mean, we have we have a hurricane start striking Puerto Rico. I haven't very little coverage of that. We have all kinds of issues coming here uh, with the. The economy, with uh, you know rising interest rates and so forth. But anyway, you turn on the TV and you are just watching basically British news, like it's just like <laughs> you, you transported you transported BBC onto CNN or what have you. That's right, wall to wall coverage. You know, without really discussing the history and the background of of the british monarchy and its effect in a very negative way globally with this whole colonial period uh just you know i mean i, I don't know what where to begin i mean just well, to... let's
0: let's begin in the 1930s jamal with the partition And uh, occupation of Palestine, of historic Palestine, by the British Empire in 1917. I'm sorry. Shouldn't we start with that? Shouldn't we start?
1: Well, yes, that's one actually small part of these. I mean, if we talk about this, I mean, we know the history with that led to the Balfour Declaration the Sykes-Pico, the division of the whole Arab world and the mess that has been created, redrawing the map of the Middle East and so forth. Others might argue, for example, in India, you know, uh, at the height of the British Empire after uh, World War I, just, uh, Britain had colonies on every continent, save, right. save Antarctica. Ruling one out of five people in the world. This is the number. So if you talk to someone from India, I was like looking over the centuries, Britain extracted wealth uh, from those colonized lands by one estimate of $45 trillion in today's money from India wow. alone. $45 wow. trillion dollars from India alone. So... so. Yes Palestine of course suffered tremendously but you got people from India then you talk about after they lost India they put all their focus in the british en- empire on on after the loss of india in 1947 i should say kenya became the jewel uh, becomes one of the jewels in the crown that we see uh, along with uh, Malaya in part because of the major source of cash, crop production, et cetera. So if you look at it also of all the uh, profiteering, let's start with that without even talking about the uh, death and destruction of all these uh, but, former colonies. of. Uh, of and I, of, I think
0: that's exactly right, Jamal. Basically what's happening now, they're giving a period of mourning, but uh, what you're hearing and reading about throughout the – you know the commonwealth and the former colonies and current and former colonies is that you're hearing that once uh queen elizabeth has had her you know period of mourning and respect the whole issue of breaking away from uh the united kingdom and the commonwealth is coming up again and this includes northern ireland it includes scotland it includes the all of the british colonies in the caribbean uh, in, and Africa, and, you know, it just like it goes on and on and on, and that there was a period of time where this was kind of uh, quiet, because people had so much regard and respect for the Queen. But now that she's uh, passed and moving on, and you have now King Charles the Third, people are going to revisit this. So I think, you know, we're probably poised for a very significant reexamination, including uh including kind of payment back you know the restitution of the of the
1: plunder that the british empire took well that's not what we are seeing on and not I mean, on tv not on tv and uh i understand there is a mourning uh, period just but also there is context here and it, it, it it's like as if you there's know there's no context I, the provided. way they they describe it is like you know that uh Uh, Nothing happened during her reign or her father's reign or her uncle's reign. Everything is hunky dory. Uh, She's a great grandmother to to many people who are paying respects. You have to discuss the effect of colonialism, British colonialism in particular, on the world. And when you, uh, the way I see it, just plain and simple, it's whitewashing colonialism. Absolutely. And that, she was that, the perfect uh, and she was the perfect person to do it. I've been watching whitewashing colonialism now since she passed away on CNN, <laughs> on NBC, on and, and the rest of the network, and no one is questioning this. I mean, it's it's fine to report the news of a monarch has passed, and if you don't want to get or you don't want to delve into the details, but to go out of your way to put the show like a Hollywood show. It is really. a Hollywood show. It's a no, Hollywood, it you know, BBC production just on American TV about you know all these, all these. Yeah, no, I think it's a ver- and, more, and say well, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, for a lot of people, the British monarchy brought a lot of pain, a lot of suffering that they basically have not apologized for till now. They haven't paid restitution. And people are still suffering from from what they've done. I think that's a point that we're going to be covering, Jamal, because uh,
0: King Charles is not going to enjoy the same courtesy that the Queen did in terms of giving a pass to the the British Empire and its uh, devastation and plunder of all these countries. So I think he should. King Charles needs to put his seatbelt on, Jamal, because it's going to be a rough ride starting very very soon.
1: You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, ArabTalkRadio.com to download the latest shows. And we'll speak to you next week. See you next week.